Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to everyonehatesmarketers.com, the digital marketing podcast for tech marketers who are sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. So before I start, I just want to let you know I've published a guide to help you stand out as a marketer. Basically, nine bullshit-free lessons from world-class tech marketers, including Seth Godin, Rand Fishkin, David Damanin from Hotjar. So you can grab it on everyonehatesmarketers.com for free. Uh, right, so in this episode, this episode is ready for people who struggle to connect with their customers online, who struggle to increase their sales because you're likely using rational thinking uh, rather than also considering emotional thinking in your marketing. So my guest today is Talia Wolf. Uh, she's a conversion consultant at getuplift.co and she spends her days working with clients to optimize their websites and create better experiences, user experiences, and all of that using emotional targeting. And she specializes in this. So she's one of the rare person who really understand that people are not just numbers in marketing and that you need to consider emotions um, to improve your leads and your visitors' decision-making and to help them take better decisions. And increase your sales in the process. So she spoke at major marketing conferences around the world. So she's, she's an expert in this, in this subject. So in this episode, you're going to learn how to use emotional targeting to help people take better decisions, to help people use your product and service uh, and take bigger, better decisions and to increase your sales and conversion in the process. And as usual, it's going to be a step-by-step -step methodology that we're going to go through. So you can really apply that in your business, whether you're starting a new business or thinking of one, or whether you have a business that is already established. So as usual, have a listen and let me know what you think. Talia, I'm delighted to talk to you today. As I told you just before we spoke, I heard from you the first time in uh, Learn Inbound, which is a digital marketing event in Dublin, uh, where I live and where I work. There is one thing that, that you talk about quite a lot that I really enjoy and really agree with. So to take a step back, we talk a lot about data-driven marketing. We talk a lot about like, you know, leaks in the funnel and audience traffic and hacks and rates and, and A-B tests and split tests and all of that. But you believe that there is, you know, it's not all about rationality and logic uh, when it comes to trying to convince people to move down the funnel or to, to buy. You believe that it's also about emotions. So why do you say that? Yeah, well, I think we definitely need to take a step back and think about, you know, why, you know, why customers buy from us. As marketers and business owners, we tend to treat our customers as points of data, We look at them in Google Analytics or in a heat map and we think about the, the age or their geographical location, the browser they're using, the device. Um, but we keep forgetting that behind those screens are actual people. Um, and these people have different challenges and problems that they're trying to solve. And it really doesn't matter what you're selling. It could be um, a cardboard box. It could be a SaaS software. Uh, it could be a, a T-shirt. Whatever you're selling, the, there's a person behind that screen who has a challenge. He doesn't know what to wear for that evening. He doesn't have a software to help collaborate with his team. Um, they have an issue with finding the best toilet paper, whatever it is. They have a challenge. And us as marketers, it's our goal to help our customers achieve those goals and get to where they want to go. Um, I think the biggest issue we have right now is that we really do treat our customers as data. 
And then you hear all these marketers constantly saying, you have to be data driven, you have to be data driven, which I completely disagree with. In fact, what I think you should be is data aware. You need to know your data. You need to understand the data. But what you need to be is customer driven. You need to understand who your customers are. What are the pains that they're facing? What are the challenges that they're facing? And only once you help your customers achieve their goals and actually fulfill what they're looking for, will you achieve your own goals, which is sales and increasing conversion rates. And this is the whole, the whole reason I said this is because the reason people buy is emotion. We love to think of ourselves as rational people. We love to think that we buy because of features and products and pricing, but that's not the case. Every time we buy something, we buy a better version of ourselves. We buy a better marketer. We buy a better dad. Uh, we want to be part of a community. We want to be loved. We want to be uh, more successful at what we do. We want a higher self-esteem, whatever it is. We're constantly buying better versions of ourselves. And it's up to us as marketers to understand what our customers are looking for so that then we can translate all that knowledge into a better customer journey. Does that well, make sense? It does. I guess we can stop the, the, the episode right now. You've said more than <laughs> a lot of people would say in 50 minutes. Yeah, I completely agree. <laughs> it's great. And people need to hear that over and over again. That's the critical part of marketing and understanding people. And there is one study that you mentioned in, in one of your articles last year, I believe, that was absolutely fascinating to me. I really love, you know, study about psychology, study about people. Um, can you recall uh, this study that showed that people with no emotions because of a damage to their brain seem yeah. to have a weird way of taking action? Yeah. So this is actually a research that was done in the 70s, if I'm not mistaken. And basically, a researcher took a bunch of people who had brain damage. And the brain damage that they had is a specific damage only in the capability to feel emotion. Everything else was absolutely perfect. It worked really well. But these subjects, they couldn't make the simplest decisions in life. It was really interesting. Even though they knew what they had to do, they couldn't do it. So for example, they couldn't choose between a turkey sandwich and a chicken sandwich or a peanut butter sandwich because they knew that they needed to choose it. But because there wasn't emotion involved, they couldn't make that decision. Um, and it's it really is fascinating because we really do think that we're rational. But without emotion, there is no decision-making process. All our decision-making process is based on our emotion. So, so those guys would have, like, they would have a, a simple choice in front of them and they literally couldn't take the decision, right? It's like, it's not yeah. like the decision was delayed. It's literally that they had, they were stuck in front of a simple choice. Oh, no. the they could not, they could not make the decision. It was really simple. This, the research, the scientist guy is called Antonio Damasio and he basically could not get these people to choose, to make a decision at all. And bear in mind, again, these people had no damage whatsoever to any other part of their brain, but the part that was in charge of emotion. And out of curiosity, where is this part of the brain in particular? Do you, do you know? Do you, do you remember? That's a very good question. Um, I, <laughs> I'm trying to think if there's a, a specific part of the brain that I can mention, but not really. I mean, it doesn't. We'll look at that and, and add that to the show notes. I'm just out of curiosity, really. Okay. So I think we've planted the decor of what we're going to talk about today in this episode. So thank you so much for this great intro. Now, I just want to take a step back again and talk about you for a while. 
So okay. you've been the marketing director of Dapples uh, for Dapples, which is a kind of project management software. You were the founder of Conversioner, and now you're founder at GetUplift.co, and you're a speaker, as I mentioned, uh, Learn Inbound, but you also spoke at at Google uh, for Moscon, Opticon, Commercial Excel, Searchlove, I mean, all the biggest digital marketing events in the world. But I'm curious about one thing in particular, and it might sound a little bit weird, but you're the first person I interview from Israel, right? And most mm -hmm. of the people I would interview would be either from the US, or the UK. And why do you think there is any big difference in the culture and in marketing, maybe in particular in Israel compared to, let's say, the, let's say the Western world, like such as, you know, the US or, or Europe in general? It's a great question. Israel in, in general has a huge startup scene. Um, in fact, after Silicon Valley, there, uh, the, the most, um, the country with the most startups in the world is actually Israel. Um, there is a huge entrepreneurial kind of stream here and there are a lot of marketers. Uh, we do a lot of, a lot of things here. Um, and I think what's probably different than other places is, um, the capacity and the willing to kind of go into the minute details and work. And not that people don't work really hard in any other place. People work extremely hard. But in Israel, there's a tendency to work over hours and kind of really focus on moving from one thing to the next and kind of trying to put pieces of a puzzle together. I don't think there's a huge difference between Israel and other, um, and other countries. It's just the fact that there are many people in Israel who do, uh, who are in the startup world, in the startup scene, do a lot of marketing and sales. That's kind of uh, where most people are, specifically in Tel Aviv. Well, why do you think it's the case? Why do you think people are so driven and so hard worker compared to other parts of the world? I don't know. I mean, for me, I grew up with a self-employed father who's always, you know, done his own work. I've been working since I was 14 years old. I think there's a very big kind of sense of uh, work ethics um, for many people. And that's kind of something that motivates you. So from from small age, you're constantly asked, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? What are you going to work at? How are you going to to pay for everything that you want? I'm, I guess it's kind of this kind of culture that you're constantly pushing um, to grow more and do more. And also there's this thing in Israel where everyone thinks they're a manager. <laughs> everyone wants to run their own company. You know, I always joke and say that you get into a taxi and the taxi driver will say that he has a startup too. It really is a crazy scene where everyone wants to kind of push the boundaries and discover new things and build new stuff. They say that the biggest resource in Israel are the people. I don't know, it's probably something in the culture yeah. um, and how it brought up. Yeah. yeah, it's a young, it's a young country and, and there's a lot of history, uh, loaded history in Israel. So yeah, yeah I need to dig into it a little bit, a little bit deeper. I'm pretty sure there is a rational reasons and emotional reasons as well to, uh, to this particular <laughs> culture. I've never been to Israel, but I, I think I need to go one day. There was this. Oh, definitely. There's a big digital marketing event there. Uh, that I've heard from, I don't remember exactly the name, but right. So you've also answered a question I wanted to ask uh, after, which was like, what makes you that driven? Because you're a very outspoken person and, and, and you don't mind, you know, leading the way and, and, and going against the grain. But you mentioned that the reason why all of that is happening is because you started to work from a young age and wanted to to do something out of your, uh, out of a situation and trying to grow. So that's that's quite interesting. 
Now let's go back to the to the marketing bullshit, uh, and I know that's something <laughs> that you that you like to talk about as well. So, what annoys you the most in today's marketing? Hmm. Well, I did mention it before, but what annoys me is people cutting corners and following best practices. So I actually, there's two things that annoy me because one of them is the people that are writing these stupid best practices. Um, you know, like the, the one tip that you only have to do and it will increase your conversions by 3,500%. Um, and the marketers that actually follow these, um, these best practices and I'm not mad that they're following the best practices because, you know, they don't know what to do. I'm mad because they're cutting corners. People, um, and this is, you know, marketers are so lazy. It's, it's not, well, maybe it's not just marketers, it's people everywhere. But the idea, I mean, people cut corners. They don't do their research. They find a leak in the funnel. They're like, oh, there's a problem with my landing page. So let me just Google and see what people say I should do instead of doing the hard research and actually, you know, going in depth and understanding who their customer is and what would work on them. For some reason, people just think the best practices are going to save them. So a red button is definitely going to work. Or if I reduce the amount of copy, that's definitely going to work. I don't know. Um, so that, that, that really annoys me a lot. <laughs> I can yes. hear it. Um, <laughs> but that's true. And, and, and there's a lot of, of people who mention the same thing or something similar. And, and, and it's true that we shouldn't necessarily blame those people because as we say, it's, it's hard. Marketing is hard. But there's, yeah. there's one thing that, that is really stri striking at the minute in digital marketing is that it seems like we as marketers are scared of talking to people. It seems like mm -hmm. we try to find any piece of software possible to avoid having a conversation with people and, and spending time to understand them. Um, right. do, you, do, do you feel the I same way? Oh, for sure. I mean, I keep talking. I, I, when I was, you mentioned I was, I spoke at Google. So, um, back in October, I was, um, teaching, um, about mobile marketing, um, and conversion optimization at Google. And one of the things they were talking about is, you know, where's the world of marketing going today? Um, and everyone kept saying, well, we're going to have, uh, you know, um, artificial intelligence and we're going to have automation and segmentation and, and it really, you know, it saddens me because I feel like everyone is, I mean, it's not a bad thing. Technology is amazing. It really is. And, and we can do brilliant things with technology, but I feel, you know, similar to what you're saying is that people are constantly looking for, um, tools and platforms and shortcuts, um, to get, you know, something to do the work for them. Um, we, we don't want to speak to our customers. We don't want to, you know, first of all, it doesn't sound that exciting, you know, using a cool tool that does everything for you, that automates everything makes it sound way cooler than, Hey, I interviewed my customer today and here are the three things that I learned. Um, but also, you know, it, it does help you cut corners and especially, uh, and this is most of marketers, you know, when you're what, you know, you're one person that's doing everything, you're doing the PPC, you're doing the SEO, you're doing the conversion optimization, uh, you're doing everything in, you know, in the marketing in your company. So you want to find these tools that are just going to help you do that are going to do the work for you. Um, but the problem with these tools is that no matter how good they are, you have to have someone behind them that knows how to build their logic. You have to know how, you know, even if you have a, an amazing tool that knows what message to show at which time to your customers, you still need to put those messages in there. You still need to put the copy in there and you need to know what to write. So it's, you know, I understand why people do it, 
but it's it's still cutting corners. You're not going to be able to use those tools as best as you could if you did your research. There is a, a good friend of mine who mentioned to me, she's working in a, in a digital agency in, in the US. I, I, I'm not going to name it, but they are desperately trying to get their clients to use machine learning. And they're just talking about <laughs> machine learning as, as this as a word like this, you know, machine learning, try to get X client to use machine learning in their work. And yeah, that's what I was t talking to her about. I was like, they are, they are basically trying to sell a solution. They are trying to, um, they have a solution and they are looking for a problem to solve with it. And, and that's completely the other way, the wrong <laughs> way, right? It's about what problem, oh. like what challenges, what jobs are those clients trying to achieve and what type of technology tool process or whatever can we use to, to solve it, not the other way around. This happens to so many businesses. Um, when I, you know, when I talk to clients and I'm like, so what problem are you trying to solve? And they're like, we have this really cool new scientific way to do machine learning or artificial intelligence. Like, no, not what product are you selling? What pain are you solving? They don't know. You know, it didn't come from that. They have this idea of what, you know, a really cool product or a really cool tool, but they don't really know who they're marketing it to or why. Um, and especially with agencies, by the way, um, agency work is really hard. So people are trying to productize their work. They're trying to get away from agency work because the old kind of uh, account manager uh, type of work is harder to do today than it was in the past. So they're looking to productize themselves. That's why they're pushing machine learning as a code, uh, which means nothing, by the way. Mm -hmm, exactly. So yeah. there is something else that I wanted to ask you, and that might be a very leading question, but you position yourself as a, as a conversion rate uh, optimization uh, specialist, and you are known in the kind of the conversion rate optimization world as one of the experts out there. But I'm just curious, personally, do you, do you like the term conversion rate optimization? No, I hate it. <laughs> I knew that. I knew it. That's like, that's like the, 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 the quick answer is I hate it. I don't see conversion optimization. The, that isn't the right term. I see it as digital transformation. I see it as digital optimization or business optimization. I don't know. I'm not good at copy. But the problem with conversion optimization or that conversion rate optimization is that you're talking about a metric. You're talking again about a single KPI. And that's what most people think conversion optimization is about. They think, oh, I just need to get more downloads or I just need to get more sales. Uh, but conversion optimization is far more than that. Conversion optimization or whatever you want to call it. Um, that's why I kind of call it customer-driven conversion optimization on my website before I change it to customer-driven optimization. The idea is that you learn as much as possible about your customers so that you can change different aspects of your business. Um, the way it works of conversion optimization or, or any process that you do is you essentially, you do the research about your customers. You understand who they are, what they're looking for, um, you know, what their pains are. And when you do that, you can then transform and change almost everything, you know, your onboarding process, your customer success process, your sales process, everything, because now you know more about your customer. Um, so conversion optimization and A-B testing in general is a way of not just, oh, I've got more downloads now. It's about understanding, 
oh, these emotions are what trigger my customer. These specific, um, you know, this, these are the specific things that my customers care about. Now I can give this information to the customer success team so they use it when they talk to their customers and people that are, you know, they want to leave the business or want to stop using our solution. We now know how to speak to them. I'm torn between two two thoughts because I agree with you 100%. I hate the term as well. I think it's very much too much based on rationale and scientific and on a number and optimization, meaning that you kind of just make something better instead of just changing and transforming stuff. But I also know that a lot of people are looking for this term and would, would search for this term on Google, for example, or would mm -hmm. go to a conference to learn more about it because that's what they learn the term is, right? So... Did you make a trade-off by saying, okay, I'm going to call, I'm going to mention that I'm a conversion rate optimization person, even though I don't like the term, so that people can find more about you? Well, I'm really, you know, well known as a conversion optimization consultant and specialist. And I still consider myself that. But my main goal is to better understand why customers and why prospects buy from my clients. That is, at the end of the day, my main role. I use that information to increase my clients' conversion rates as part of it. Um, so I don't mind using conversion rate optimization. I use it in my blog posts, and, but I do try to change the lingo. And I do try to explain to people that I really do see it as customer-driven optimization or business optimization and not conversion optimization. Robert, so we can change our marketing, our onboarding and customer success processes to fit the research that we've done. Right. So let's go into the, the tactical and the step by step. Uh, obviously, we are going to avoid, you know, speaking about best practices per se and say this is the only <laughs> way you can improve. But I think that we're going to try to get into a kind of a step step-by-step -step guide that anybody can take away, can learn from and, and take a few things away from and, and improve their business. So let's consider, first of all, let's, let's plan the decor. Let's, let's, let's decide that we have a business that is selling a software, uh, so a SaaS per se business, and we have a website that is there already. And we have a few landing pages here and there uh, that is uh, with some, you know, visitors landing on along them from from PPC or Facebook ads or organic traffic. And let's say that we want to improve sales. We want to increase the number of people who buy from us. I'd like to go in a step by step into how would we do that using your emotional targeting uh, advice. Mm -hmm. So, what would be the number one step? The first step. Okay. Um, I break it down into quite a few steps. So first, first you do the data, right? You look at Google Analytics, you look at heat maps. Where's the leak? First off, that's great. Google Analytics is going to show you where the story is. But next, most importantly, and that's kind of the biggest thing with conversion optimization, you have like uh, randomly, generally you have like three steps. You have find the leak, make the change, and then test it, right? Um, Everyone understands how you find the leak. Everyone understands how to launch a test. And if you don't know, then, okay, you can take a course on this or on that, or you can read a blog post. But the biggest issue is, like, how do I know what to fix? So I found I have a leak in my landing page. Now what do I optimize? And that's where the emotional targeting part comes in. So the first step is actually doing customer surveys and research. 
Um, so I, I do, a few, I have a few different parts that I do. So I do customer, um, interviews and customer, um, surveys and I do staff interviews and staff, um, surveys. And I do them both because a, I want to see the kind of difference between what the staff thinks and what the customers are saying and B, because I want to see if I can learn a lot from them. A, your customers have the answers. The customers know what they're looking for. Now, they will answer very kind of technically if you ask them the wrong questions. Um, you know, they'll say, well, I bought this product because the price was this or because there was a sale or because I, they have this and these features. But if you ask why enough times, and that's, by the way, the secret, why do you need this feature? Okay, why? Okay, why? At the end of it, you get to the essence of their true pain why they needed this solution. Um, so I asked the customers the questions. And then the reason I also want to talk to them is because they give me the lingo. I want to use their words. I don't want to talk about myself. I don't want to talk about what I think I should be saying. I want to use my customers' words. And then I interview my staff or my client staff. Um, anyone who has any touch point with a client, anyone who talks to them on a daily basis or emails them, um, I want to ask them, what they think they're selling, what they think the biggest pain of a customer is, what they think is the best uh, way to convince someone to buy the product. Um, and then the next thing I'll, you do is a competitive research. So before um, that, I'm going to cut you uh, yes. right there. Sorry. Go. So let's go back to the, fir the first step again. Um, so you're asking some questions of a survey. And, and I, I love the, the tactic of, of asking why many times until you get into the, the bottom of, of the issue or, or the bottom of the answer. But how do you do that over a survey? Or would you prefer to do that over customer interviews? I'll do a customer interview. So the first step I'll do is I'll put out a customer survey and I'll also ask in the survey if they are willing to have a conversation with us. Those, those who do, I will then have a 20 to 30 minute conversation with them on the phone or mainly what I'd love to do is Skype or any video conference that I can have with them so I can see their face and the way they react to things. Um, so in a customer survey, I will ask um, some questions. But when I get into the interview, I can kind of ask them more the harder questions. And when I mean harder questions, as an example, it would be, who's your role model? Or, you know, uh, what do you like to eat for breakfast? Or <laughs> um, where would be your dream holiday spot? Um, I ask questions that aren't necessarily to do with anything um, that have anything to do with the product or the solution that I'm selling because I want to get to know my customers. I want to understand who they are themselves internally because um, that's what actually matters. So as an example, by the way, um, last year I worked with an e-commerce site where I asked people who their role model is. And the vast majority of answers were someone within their family. Um, it was either a father or a mother. Most people said father. And we use this knowledge to change the way, to change our content, to change our images, to change the colors that we were using, to, to basically portray a more family, community, loving strategy than what they were doing. And that increased conversion rates <laughs> immensely. Um, because now we were talking about what they mattered the most, what they cared about. So these kind of questions are things that you really do want to ask um, and better understand. And they're better than just saying, hey, 
Why did you come to our website today? What almost stopped you from purchasing our solution today? It's very technical questions that you do need to ask, but when you dig deeper into the whys, you get really interesting answers. Okay. And um, for the staff, a question would you ask basically the, the question you ask the customer by, by saying, what did you think, what do you think your customers' role models are or that kind of question? Yes. Um, I start by sending out a questionnaire to whoever can fill it out, everyone in the team, uh, from the designer to the copywriter to uh, the marketer and then the CEO, the customer success team, anyone, even someone who's in product or whatever, or even a developer who has no touch point usually with the customer. I like to ask everyone because you'll see that there's a huge difference between what each team thinks Um That usually helps me also get everyone on the same level. Um, one of the biggest issues with these things is, you know, the designer thinks they need to do this. The copywriter thinks that they need to do that. The marketer has a different idea. Everyone's kind of thinking about the customer in a different way. So when you kind of have everyone's answers and you put them together, you can level the field and say to everyone, so here's our customer. Here's what they're saying. Just so you know, this is who you are building a, pl a platform for uh, designing for writing for and etc do you have any way to to segment like the customer you're talking to because I, i would get an example that's a work some work we've done in the past where we had to identify the most profitable customers and just talk to them mm -hmm. because we knew that 20 of the customer base was worth 80 of revenue do, is it something yeah. you do as well Yeah, definitely. I mean, we start by identifying the level of awareness of a prospect. Um, there's five different levels of awareness. Um, so we're trying to identify if it's someone who has no awareness whatsoever or someone who ha is aware that they have a problem, but they haven't searched for a solution or someone that is aware of the, the problem. They've searched for a solution, but they haven't decided that you are the right person for them. So uh, there's all sorts of different levels of awareness. But once you understand the level of awareness of the person that's coming to your website, it's easier for you to optimize for them. Because if it's someone who has no idea that they even have an issue, uh, for example, collaborating. So if you are on a team and you have no idea that you have an issue collaborating in the team, there's no use for me to use an ad that says, This is the best way to collaborate. You first have to say, hey, you know how you're having an issue collaborating? Here's what you need to do. So the first thing is just understanding, you know, understanding what the level of awareness is of your customer and segmenting them according to that, to their level of awareness. And then you can start segmenting and kind of marketing to each segment in that level of awareness. Okay, so step one. You understand your customer, you talk to them, you get to the why. And step two, you started to mention it. So once you've spoken to your customers and you've done staff interviews um, and you kind of in sync to see the difference between them, I then do competitor research. Now, um, competitor research does not mean that I want you to copy your competitors' websites. That's another thing that annoys me in marketing because um, it's just the blind leading the blind. People are just copying from each other because they think the other person knows what they're doing. Um, what I like to do is look at my competitors' reviews and testimonials um, to understand what people care about. So, for example, if you're an e-commerce site and you're looking at um, what people are writing, the reviews, 
you'll understand what people are concerned about, what they're worried about, what they would like to make sure that they have. And that's gold because you can use that as your content on your website. You can use that as social proof. So if you see that people constantly keep saying that they're not sure about the durability of your product and how, you know, how long it will last, you can have a testimonial saying, hey, at first I was worried it wouldn't last long, but it lasted for three years or whatever. Um, so competitor research is very helpful. And the, the other thing that's really helpful with competitor research is to understand where the market is at. Now, I don't look at a competitor research as in what features and products do they do that are better than mine. I actually look about what, um, what people feel about them. So, um, you know, do they feel animosity? Do they feel annoyed? Are they happy with the solutions that are out there right now? Uh, what are people missing? Do they feel they can trust the industry? Um, do they feel that they're missing a specific key component? Um, it's more looking at the emotional side of things, of understanding what people feel towards a company, what they feel towards an industry, if that makes sense. And then I I use that data to then understand where I want to position myself. So how do you do that? So that would be step three. So once you've collected data about, about your customers and prospects and, and the staff inside uh, the company, and then once you, you, once you know where your competitors stand, what would you do? Do you take a spreadsheet and try to find patterns? What do you do? Yeah. So with the customer surveys and with the interviews, I start to look for patterns. And what's really interesting is you'll see within customer surveys specifically that things keep repeating themselves. Um, I recently did some work for a online university. And at the end of the day, I went through hundreds of surveys. But you could see that there were four or five things that people kept saying. One of the things that people kept saying is they weren't sure, A, that they'd be able to study online, that they could keep up with the work, that they wouldn't just stop. And B, they weren't sure about the level of the um, content that they would be learning because it's online. Now, these things, they keep repeating themselves. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you're going to find things that aren't repeatable, but most people have the same concerns when it comes to a specific offer or solution. Um, and what I do is I do an emotional uh, content strategy. And what that means is I write down the pains of my customers. What are the biggest pains that my customers are experiencing right now before they find my solution? So if I'm a dating site, for example, what are people feeling right now? They feel lonely. Maybe they feel that online dating isn't for them. Maybe they're worried that no one will choose them. Um, so they'll have their profile there, but no one will want to date them. Uh, maybe they're worried about what people will think about them, that they're using an online dating service. There's all sorts of different kind of things. I'm looking for the pains. And I list those pains that I use from looking at the customer surveys, the interviews, and the competitor research. And then I say, well, what would be the answer to that pain? If I'm someone who's worried that no one's going to like me on a dating site, what would be my solution? So my answer to that will be, we're going to find someone specifically for you that is a perfect match. You don't have to worry. So I kind of have, what are the pains? And then I think about what would be the answers? What are the solutions to answer that? Um, and it's kind of like the conscious and subconscious of a customer. But people say one thing, but they really mean something else. So you want to think about what the pains are and then what you would answer as a solution to their issues. And okay. then you start looking into the data. Okay, so tell me more about this. 
about the conscious and subconscious or about how I answer the questions? <laughs> how you answer the question. So now let's go back to the, let's make a summary. So exactly as you said, first of all, understand customers, understand your, the company uh, you're involved in, whether as a, as a client or whether you work for them. And then second step, I'm going to forget right now, I have a big blank, mm -hmm. is to... It's fine. We have customer research, which is customer um, surveys and interviews, staff interviews and questionnaires, and then we have competitor research, which is step three. Step four is um, emotional content strategy. Great. Okay. So now let's say we have, <laughs> we've noticed that, uh, that there is some big issues with with our content with our current landing pages our current funnel and 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 we want to to fix them so i would you actually advise to avoid just testing a call to action button versus another and really try to to test concepts like full like different concepts yeah Yeah, so I have always said that I'm against testing call to action buttons or titles. What I do is once I figured out the pains of my customers and what my answers to them are, um, I then think, okay, what does my customer want to feel? So if it's a date online dating site, let's just continue with this example. If it's an online dating site, the customer wants to feel loved. They want to feel that it's going to be easy. They want to feel that someone is going to want them. They want to feel that they Um, you know, they look good. They want to have a high self-esteem. So I, I minimize, I take all these things they want to feel. And I think about the different raw emotions that they want. And then I translate those emotions into a design. So it's not just changing. It's not just changing the call to action button. It's saying, what copy can I use to illustrate those feelings? What design, what images can I use? What bullet points do I want to use? What colors do I want to use? Which fonts do I want to use? Because everything on that page needs to support that specific feeling. So if I want to make people feel anticipation, trust, and, um, I don't know, stability, I want to think about how I can make those three feelings appeal in my design. So I use colors and fonts and images and text to do that within my design. And that's what I test. How would you, so let's take a few typical emotions or typical feelings that you want, that we want our customers to feel. So the, there's one in particular, you mentioned trust. How would mm -hmm. you, I mean, we need to avoid, you know, going into the best practice mode where we say, oh, if you yeah. want people to feel trust, but in general, like what would be the typical, you know, thing that you would do to force so that people trust the brand? Well, the thing that's interesting about trust is that you don't have to say that you're trustworthy. In fact, if you say that you're trustworthy, people won't believe you. You need to make people feel trust. Um, now, the first thing that best practices say is use the color blue. No, that's not how you make people feel trust. Trust, I would use social proof. Okay, what does that mean? That means not just saying this company is really trustworthy. I would trust it with my life. No. You go back to the customers you spoke to and you say, people that said, I was worried at the beginning that I couldn't trust the company. And you say, hey, what made you feel better about the company? How did you feel that you could trust us? Well, I felt that I could trust you because I saw that the company was around for 70 years. I saw that you have 24 hours customer service and I know that I have money back guarantee. Oh, great. So those are the three things that I'm going to mention. Or I'll say, do you mind saying that in a quote? And I'm going to use it as a testimonial. 
So for trust, you use social proof. You go back to the customers and you use their words. You can use colors, yes. You can use the right images to portray trust. You can use different copy to portray trust. And again, it goes back to the level of awareness of the customer. But the idea is to understand the emotion that you're trying to portray and then go back to the customer service that you did or to even the interviews you did with your staff and find those gems, find those places where people mentioned the exact same things and how they solved them. You actually don't have to make anything up. You don't have to write anything from scratch. Your customers have said it all. It's all there in your data sheets and all that data that you've collected from your customer surveys. You just have to pull it out. So let's take another example because I like the the trust one. Would you can you can you name another kind of feeling or emotion that comes quite uh, often uh, with your clients or, or in general uh, that people need mm. to feel? Many times, clients want their my clients want their prospects to feel trust, um, anticipation. Maybe they want to, them to feel part of a community. That's one thing. Um, it's more about, it's part of trust, by the way. The whole part of a community thing is kind of making them feel that this is a well-known brand, that, you know, there's a lot of people in it, that it's fun. Um, so there's all sorts of, sorts of different emotions. I wouldn't say there's specific emotions that repeat themselves. Trust is something that everyone wants everyone to feel all the time. So it's easy to say, but it really does depend on your target audience and your product but many times people just most clients want you to feel trust um, they want you to feel that this is a fun company um, so they want you to feel like it's fun to do um, this is actually one thing that usually happens with products that are marketing to marketers um, because because marketers are overwhelmed with tools the amount of tools that are out there to make your life easier are insane. Um, so one of the biggest challenges of a, of a platform that's marketing to marketers is to make them feel that it is so simple and fun and easy um, that it's a no-brainer. And it's like one of the most important things because otherwise people, if it seems too overwhelming, they're not going to try it. They're not even going to give it the time of day to try it. So how do you feel, how do you make people feel less overwhelmed? Well, I, I think that it's a combination of many things. It's the con the top, the content that you use. So it's the copy that you use. Um, it's the images that you're using. Um, and it's also the, uh, colors that you're using and the bullet points that you're using. Uh, one thing that I like to do is I talk about this a lot in my course, um, is the desired feeling versus the current feeling. So when I'm doing my research and we're, we're doing everything we just spoke about, um, I talk about what are the, what does the prospect feel right now? What pain do they feel? And then I talk about what they would like to feel. So if we're talking about, um, marketers, if we're talking about online dating, then someone's feeling lonely. What they want to feel is they want to be loved, right? And you can portray both of these in your design. You can either say, well, to make someone buy from me, I'm going to show them the pain. I'm going to say, do you feel lonely right now? Would you like to have someone um, tired of staying at home every weekend um, and making up excuses versus a different variation that's like, here's what your life could be like, an image of a couple walking on the beach and 
um, you know, your future is here or the love of your life is just around the corner. It's kind of two different strategies of um, understanding what works best on your customer, but the current feeling versus the desired feeling. Does that make sense? It does. So you have those concepts and then you would kind of split test uh, them to, to see which one worked the best. Um, right. Is there any other step after that? Or once once you've done that and you saw it work, you kind of work on smaller elements perhaps? Or do you think your work right. is done at this stage? No, no, definitely. What happens is once we start testing um, and we see that one strategy works better than the other, so we know that these emotions worked better than other emotions, then we can start getting into the minute details like the call to action button, the specific copy, um, the bullet points that you're using, the video or the image that you're using. Um, so you're constantly testing and thinking about more um, ways to optimize that page. And then it doesn't stop there because okay, maybe we optimize the landing page, but, and we know that these are the emotions that we're trying to work on. But now I'll go also to the sales emails that we're using or their attention emails and do some testing there on the same emotions and see if we can also drive growth in there. Yeah. So once, once you find a concept and emotions that, that work and are relevant to, to those people, chances are that in other places in the process, in the business, it might be uh, helpful as well. I'm curious about mm -hmm. one thing in particular. Because there's a, f I believe that conversion rate optimization sometimes could be a lot of, uh, could be really about manipulation instead of truth. Mm. There's a lot of example where people, you know, would, would declare something about their product that is not, that is simply not true just because they know that this might convince more people to try, right? And that creates bad profits in the long term. So I wonder in, in your own work, did you ever have to work with clients selling products or services that you just didn't like and felt like you didn't feel good to, to, to work with them? Did you ever come across this type of, of work? Yeah, definitely. When I started out um, quite a few years ago, I was looking for projects that I could just do just to test out. So obviously I was taking on clients that I today I would never take on. Um, but like Forex or gaming companies and stuff that I would never do today, but I did in the past because I felt like that was my great way to learn as much as possible and test. And they had big budgets to spend on A-B testing. But yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't work with those type of companies today. So wh why wouldn't you? Is Because you have enough clients to work from that you can choose? Or did you, did you have this sort of a awakening where you're like, you know, fuck that bullshit. I'm not going to work for these industries ever again. <laughs> I think it's, it's a combination of a few things, but uh, most importantly, I think it's when I realized that conversion optimization is more than just that KPI. So the thing with, with, you know, most companies, and this isn't just in the gaming, it's in most industries, they just think about how can I get right, you know, the most sales right now. Um, but that's why I've been doing a lot of testing on actual retention stuff. Um, because you get the customer right now. Yes, you get their money or you, they buy from you, but your goal is ultimately to actually get them to keep coming back, to keep buying from you and to keep, um, you know, ha a happy customer because yeah, you can get their money one time, but have you won the customer? Have they become a loyal customer? Um, many times with these industries, I didn't feel like that was the case at all. And as you said, many times companies just say stuff just because they want to sell. 
But then the customer gets really disappointed because they don't get what they signed up for. The, the customer success sucks or people don't answer their emails or they don't get their money back or all sorts of different things that would really annoy me and would make me feel very uncomfortable to work with. Um, and that's why when I start working with any client, I'm constantly asking them about their attention um, plan. What do they do with their customer success? How do they help their customers? Because at the end of the day, that's where the money's going to come in from. It's far more cost effective to increase retention than just get new conversions. What's your advice to marketers working for companies that sell shitty products and services? <laughs> get out of there? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it's a hard question because people... You know, they work and they need the money or whatever. But again, it's, I don't know if you, if you're not passionate about what you're selling, how can you do good marketing? Um, I, I don't think you can. I don't think if you, if you don't believe in the product that you're selling, if you don't love what you're doing, there's no real way to actually do a good job unless you're really in love with making money. And then you're probably not listening to this podcast anyway. But yeah, I mean, you have to do what you enjoy doing, what you love doing. What do you think marketers should learn today that will help them in the next 10 years or 50 years? Research. Just, I think they should, everyone should learn old school research. Go back to Ogilvy, go back to um, offline agency methodologies. That's, by the way, how I built the emotional targeting methodology. I built it, I worked in an offline agency. So I took it from there and I just, translated it to an online world learn the old school methodology because the old school methodology didn't focus on data they focused on people and that's what marketing is all about it's people offline world is a very strange world isn't it it's full of people <laughs> talking to each other and, and meeting each other it's very weird but you know you know what's really weird by the way about the offline world is that the whole of off of the offline world is emotional i don't know if you've ever seen an ad for cigarettes or for perfume or jeans that makes sense because it's all emotional. No one talks about the product. No one talks about the price. No one talks about the features of your phone that they're selling. It's all about the amazing person you're going to be if you buy this iPhone, how brilliant you are or how what a self amazing self-esteem you're going to have if you wear these jeans. No one talks about, oh, the jeans are made from this and this and we have five buttons and we have uh, two pockets. That's what the online world focuses on. That's the, you know, that's the difference. The online world talks about their features and pricing and how amazing they are. And that's why they don't sell. The offline world is crazy and weird, but that's what sells emotion. Yeah. I, I would argue that there are a lot of uh, shitty brands out there who, who advertise, oh, who advertise badly offline as well. But I, I, I know what you mean. But like my, I, 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 you might say that I might, I might go too far in this, but. I just have a lot of trouble accepting those ads selling you a better you that sell bad <laughs> products uh, like Coca-Cola and McDonald's. And right. I, don't, I don't have any problem naming them. I, 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 of course. I, despite that way, I, I don't like it because I think they're lying to you. You know, obviously when you say, you know, bring your family to McDonald's and you're going to all have fun and you have a, a better, a better relationship with your kids. Well, mm, you know, not yeah. really. So No, so the, uh, again, you have to say this. It's great to know how to do marketing, but you also have to have a good product. I mean, 
McDonald's went and changed their colors from red to green and increased their revenues by like 30% a few years ago just because people felt that green felt more healthy. Uh, you know, that's flat out lying to people. Um, it doesn't mean, you know, that every brand that does emotion offline knows, you know, is a good product. I'm just saying that if you have a good product, you should think about how to do it emotionally too. Yeah, fair enough. I agree with you. What are the top three resources you would recommend to people, to marketers mm. in particular? Okay, Copy Hackers by Joanna Weeb. That's a must-have. Read the book by Dan Ariely, which is probably my favorite book in the world. And that's how I started kind of uh, this whole <laughs> this whole journey, which is predictably irrational. And you can check out my blog, I guess. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> which fine. Is that works. Tons of resources about emotion and psychology and how people make decisions. What's the address? It's getuplift.co. Great. Well, Talia, you've been a pleasure to talk to. Thank you so much for all of those tactics. I think a lot of a lot of listeners would, uh, would have learned a lot today. So thank you once again. Well, thank you for having me. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. And this is the moment where I tell you to subscribe to our email list. So before you leave and go to another podcast or listen to another episode, I don't treat email list uh, the way people usually treat their email list. I really treat that as a, as a one-to-one conversation. So I'm going to send you very short and personal emails every two weeks, I would say. We, I'll inform you of guests in advance. I'll share with you my numbers and how many listens we get. And I'll also ask you for your feedback in terms of the questions we can ask future guests. And perhaps I can also uh, have you on the show uh, someday. So don't be afraid to subscribe. I'm not going to spam you. And you can always uns unsubscribe for sure if you wish. The second thing we need from you is your harsh and honest feedback. We know that this show is not perfect yet and we always... Uh, can improve so you can send us your email at feedback at everyonehatesmarketers.com good or bad please feel free to send me an email and the last thing I like uh, from you is that if you did like the episode please share it to your friends your colleagues or whoever might like it and also please review it on iTunes or another service that you might use to listen to your podcast because if you leave us a five star review it means that more people will be likely to listen and we can spread the word quicker So thank you so much once again and au revoir. And that's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple uh, days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. 
Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, skim through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content that's coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.